I'd like to invite you with me this morning on a journey back 53 years in time uh, to a nine-day period uh, that lasted between July the 16th and July the 24th in 1969. I'm talking about the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, which took off in a Saturn V rocket from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, carrying three astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins. This mission was the result of a goal set out by President Kennedy to Congress all the way back in 1961 that America would put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And it was an ambitious goal because a lot of the technology that was needed in order to realize that goal hadn't even been invented yet. Nonetheless, eight years later, these three astronauts find themselves flying to the moon in in a rocket made of five million parts containing less computing power than you have on your smartphone right now. That's a risk, isn't it? Anyone up for that? (laughs) Collins stayed back in orbit around the moon while Armstrong and Aldrin descended to the surface in a lunar landing module called the Eagle. And talk about cutting it fine, they had 50 seconds of fuel left in the descent and clouds of moon dust are rising up as he gets nearer to the surface and it obscures his visibility, but nevertheless, he touches down on what they then named the Sea of Tranquility on the surface of the moon on the 20th of July, 1969. They radioed back to base using a phrase that has now passed into our popular culture, the eagle has landed. And then they began to get themselves ready to climb down and be the first ever people to walk on the surface of the moon. Now, you may not know this, but Buzz Aldrin was an elder at a church, at his church, called Webster Presbyterian Church. And the minister there was a guy called Dean Woodruff, and he sent Buzz Aldrin up on the moon landing trip with a little communion kit. And so before climbing out of the eagle, Buzz Aldrin took communion like we've taken communion this morning. You know, can I just advise that if any of you elders are going to go to Mars maybe in the future, and, or perhaps some of you sitting out there in the chairs, you fancy that trip, we are going to be praying for you a whole, whole lot, and we're going to send you with one of our little communion kits, and you just have to lift the little, yeah, okay, you know how to do this, okay. Once they were fully ready, both the astronauts exited the lunar module, and Armstrong and Aldrin were wired up to Houston, and they could listen to all their, their kind of essential stats, and their, their heart rates that they were recording were the highest on the whole trip as they exited uh, the, the door, and that was because they were trying to get themselves out of this tiny space in their huge spacesuits with all their gear on. Can you imagine how nervous you must have felt uh, and how stressed that would have been realizing that you were about to realize millions of man hours and millions of dollars of, of projects and then you get stuck in the door? Your heart rate would be going off the, off the wall, wouldn't it? But they get free and uh, Armstrong starts to descend the nine-rung ladder. He can't see his feet because his spacesuit's in the way. Um, And as he descends the ladder, he switches on a camera uh, which is connected back to a broadcast back to Earth And an estimated 600 million people around the world start watching live this momentous occasion. And so six and a half hours after touchdown and eight years after President Kennedy made his initial promise, Neil Armstrong steps for the first time onto the surface of the moon, the first person ever to do it. And he said what are now those incredibly famous words, that is one small step for mankind. Sorry, that is one small step for a man one giant leap for mankind. 
One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Now, every once in a while, someone says something that is totally momentous, and it becomes a landmark moment in our history. There have been so many famous uh, speeches and statements that have been made through history that have worked in this way, and we could have picked from any number of them uh, this morning as illustrations. Think for a moment of the amazing things said by Winston Churchill, uh, Martin Luther King, or President Mandela. I mean, there's a very long list of people in this category. Words spoken at key moments have the power to represent truly significant turning points or define progress in ways that can have enormous significance literally enormous. And it's as though that everything up to the point of the words being spoken represents one kind of reality, whereas everything after the time that those words have been uttered is different. Everything up to that day on the the moon 53 years ago when Neil Armstrong said those words ultimately had been effort and imagination and endeavor and hope and purpose up to that point. It was an assignment up to that point, but once those words had been said... We all stepped with those astronauts into another realm where a staggering and pioneering goal had now been achieved. And it was history. And it was behind us. We'd done it. I want to suggest to us all today that there is a similar landmark sentence in the New Testament. And before these words get spoken, one particular life and many other connected with it were traveling in one direction... And then after these words get spoken, this life and thousands and possibly even millions of other lives start heading in a very different direction and a very different trajectory towards some very, very different outcomes. We're in uh, week five of our current uh, current, uh, sermon series called Assigned, and we are unpacking what it means to be assigned by God. Over these last few weeks, we've taken the path of looking at some different Bible characters and how they got assigned and what their story was and the impacts of their assignment and how they walked it out. On the wall of the entrance lobby of our church, as you came in this morning, you will have seen the words, be assigned. And that's part of our mission statement, transformed lives, transforming lives. And although we believe totally that the biggest agent of transformation in the cosmos is the power of God, no question, we also know that we are being invited by God to engage strongly in that ourselves. We partner with him in it. Being assigned is an essential part of how we become more like Jesus. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26 from verse 9. Uh, you can also link to the notes for today on the YouVersion app. Uh, that's underneath our YouTube description. It should be on your WhatsApp as well. Or if you're just opening up the YouVersion app for the first time, you can just look up, look up the events section and you'll find Birmingham City Church there. And the notes for today's message are contained there for you. Acts chapter 26. Uh, the, the, the person that we are going to explore this morning uh, is very militantly and dangerously anti-Christian. Is a man named Saul. But Saul undergoes a colossal transformation in his life because he meets in person with Jesus. And at this first meeting, Jesus sets him a vast assignment. Call the world to follow me. Can you imagine that? Meeting with Jesus in person, and he says, that level of assignment, call the world to follow me, that's enormous. That's just a huge, huge assignment. 
In response to the huge change for his life, Saul drops his old name and he adopts a new name. He becomes Paul. And the passage we're about to read this morning is by now a long time after Paul's dramatic encounter um, and his conversion. But this forms his detailed recollection of what happened on the day that he met Jesus. And he's sharing this story uh, in front of a Jewish king called Agrippa. Uh, he gets an opportunity to, to, to give his testimony effectively. So let's pick it up from Acts chapter 26 from verse 9. Uh, let's read along. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is Paul opening his, his uh, message to Agrippa. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, (coughs) that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There is an absolutely landmark statement spoken in this passage. And I believe it's up there with some of the most famous statements and speeches and words ever uttered. I really do. And I'm not sure that the church globally or historically has perhaps given these words the weight that they deserve, and I'd like to change that today. Everything before these words was traveling one way for Paul or Saul as he was then. Everything after these words starts traveling a different way. Paul hears Jesus tell him these words as he's literally lying in the road after his bright light encounter. And it's verse 16. Just jump back with me in your, in your Bibles. Just let's focus in again on exactly what it is that Jesus says in verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I'm going to read it to you again and let it soak into your spirit, church. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Let's just break this down a minute. What is Jesus saying? Number one, rise. Number two, stand on your feet. Number three, I've appeared to you. Number four, there is a purpose in my appearance. Number five, I am appointing you. Number six, you are going to serve me, Paul, Saul. Seven, you are going to report about me, which is what a witness does. Number eight, as you look back, you will see me. And number nine, as you look ahead, expect to see me again and again. Let me give you another version of what Jesus is saying to Paul, but filled in with some of the implications. Let's fill in the gaps here a little bit. This is where this is going. 
Number one, I speak my resurrection life and power over you. Number two, take exactly the same stand that the armor of God allows you to take. Because that word for stand is the same verb as stand in Ephesians chapter 6. Number three, I have come from heaven personally to meet you. Number four, I have come to give your life massive purpose and massive fruitfulness. Number five, I handpicked you in advance for my divine purposes. Number six, you will serve something far, far bigger than yourself. Number seven, you will find yourself constantly sharing about me to others as you travel the world. Number eight, as you look back, your life will be jam-packed with testimonies of how I showed up for you. And number nine, as you look forward, expect with a very high level of anticipation that I will be creating loads of new testimonies in your journey ahead. Acts 26, 16 is huge. It is a huge verse. It's got colossal meaning. If you took and unpacked all of what that said, you would take a lifetime to work it out, and that is exactly what we see Paul doing. It's an enormous statement. It's right up there in all the statements in the Bible, and I believe it's right up there with all the statements that ever get said at any time to anyone in history. It's huge. Let it soak into your spirit. I'm just going to read that list of things, the implications again. I want you to soak in this and really receive it. It's huge. Number one, I speak my resurrection life and power over you. Number two, take exactly the same stand that the armor of God allows you to take. Number three, I have come from heaven to meet you personally myself. Number four, I have come to give your life massive purpose and massive fruitfulness. Number five, I handpicked you in advance for my divine purposes. Number six, you will serve something far, far bigger than yourself. Number seven, you will find yourself constantly sharing me to others as you travel the world. Number eight, you will, as you look back on your life, it will be jam-packed with testimonies testimonies of how I showed up for you, and number nine, as you look forward, expect with a very high level of anticipation that I will be creating loads of new testimonies in the journey that lies ahead. There's so much here, but let's get into what I think are the top three things that I think Jesus is trying to get across to Saul, who becomes Paul who is lying on the ground receiving these words from the risen Jesus who appears to him in a vision whilst he is in the middle of trying to destroy Christianity. I think the first thing that, Paul communica- sorry, that Jesus communicates to Saul who becomes Paul is power. It's power. When we are assigned, Jesus gives us resurrection power. If those astronauts needed a rocket full of fuel to get to the moon, then we are going to need a rocket full of, a rocket full of Holy Spirit to get, uh, to get to where Jesus is sending us on our assignments and in our lives. When Jesus puts us on assignment, he puts resurrection power on the inside of us. As Paul is lying there on the ground, Jesus says, but rise. Now that word for rise is the identical word used for resurrection or of raising to life. It's the Greek word anistemi. And Luke uses this word no less than 73 times in Luke and Acts. It often describes an actual resurrection. It often describes when people rise up with something new in their hearts. Often it's used of a time when key and righteous decisions are being made by people. When Mary hears... From the angel Gabriel about Jesus, Luke says, or writes down, that she rises up 
and goes to her cousin Elizabeth. It's the same word. When Jesus stands up to his feet to preach his first ever sermon in Luke 4, you remember the one? You know, the, the power of the Lord is upon me, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. That message, his opening sermon ever. Where it says Jesus stands up, it's the word for resurrection. He rises up. As the paralytic is lowered through the roof and, you know, the hole that they made and they healed him, he arises and, and picks up his mat and goes home. Resurrection, power, same again. When the prodigal son comes to his senses in the far-off country, he says to himself, I will arise and go to my father. Luke uses the word anastemi again. It's resurrection. It's raised up. It's rising up. It's new life. When the two disciples on the road to Emmaus realize that they've been talking with none other than Jesus, they rise and return to Jerusalem. Same word again. We all need resurrection power from Jesus for our daily lives, let alone our assignments, but I would put it to you that we desperately need it for our, our assignments as well. Luke weaves this amazing rise up resurrection word throughout his gospel and all the way through Acts to keep on reminding us all that connection to an assignment from Jesus is all about resurrection power on the inside of us. So I want to also just point out to you that it's the resurrected Jesus who appears to Saul, and he then speaks resurrection power into Saul, and he, his name gets changed, and he's lying there, and it births a massive and lifelong ministry, which then literally spreads that resurrection power and news right around the world. Paul is on exactly that assignment of doing that when he prays this famous prayer over the church in Ephesus. And I'm going to pray this prayer over you right now. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty power of his, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. A key aspect of assignment church is that Jesus, when he speaks to us about our assignment, as he speaks, he puts resurrection power in the words and they jump into us and we get resurrection power from him when he does so. Really key that you receive that. An assignment from God is laced with resurrection power and life. And towards the end of this morning's service, if you'd like some resurrection power to help you, with your, with you, uh, help you in your life, and I'm going to put it to you that we all need it, I need it, then let's be getting ready in our own spirits to receive some of that. I've asked our prayer team to be ready on standby to, so that you can be prayed to receive God's Spirit, to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, because that's the, the mechanism by which we receive resurrection power uh, today. God's Spirit is going to fill up our rocket tanks with spiritual power. And when we get a sign, Jesus gives us a resurrection word over us. Now, if the first thing that we draw from Acts 26.16 for assignment is, is power from Jesus, then the second is purpose. When we are assigned, we will be handpicked in advance by God for purpose. Jesus says, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you. Hands up here, anybody who likes a watch, like a wristwatch. Come on, you could admit to it, yeah? Anyone here likes a watch? Okay, I really like a classy watch myself. 
Uh, and my, my granddad, Roy, was somebody who loves watches as well. And, you know, maybe I, I get that from him. Uh, Roy, are you here in the second service? Just give us a wave if you're here. There's Roy. Now, Roy, that Roy there is not my granddad. Uh, but actually, Roy is 80 yesterday. Give him a round of applause. Go on, Roy. And one of the reasons I picked Roy out just to celebrate him is uh, he's also our eldest elder as well. So thank you, Roy, for that. But that Roy is not my granddad uh, who loves the watches, just so we're clear about that, okay? Now, when I was researching the story of the moon landing in 1969, I discovered something pretty interesting. The first wristwatch worn on the moon was made by a company, a watch company, called Omega. And it was called the Speedmaster. Uh, now, both Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had one, but Neil Armstrong had left his inside the Eagle. And so Buzz Aldrin, being very into watches, like some of you are, um, actually wore his with a very long strap around his spacesuit uh, as they got out of the capsule. And so it, the Omega Speedmaster is the first watch to be worn by a person on the moon. Now, what happened was that during the space program, NASA went to kind of all the high-quality watch companies uh, with that an incredibly demanding specification for what a space mission watch might need to be able to withstand. Uh, as you can imagine, you know, the conditions it might go through would be pretty extreme. It had to be able to live through very high and very low temperatures and sometimes very fast. You know, because the, the sunrise on the, on, the, on the moon's surface is pretty quick and there's no atmosphere there, so a watch needs to be able to take all that heat. It had to be happy with a vacuum. It had to be happy with 100% oxygen. It had to be able to withstand shock and, of course, the G-force of going on a rocket ride to the moon. It needed to deal with uh, high pressure and low pressure and uh, vibrations and loud noises. And so they went to all these different companies, and I'm going to try and pronounce this first one correct. I think it's Longines. Longines, the, the French uh, watch company, and then Breitling as well, and Rolex and Omega, and all of these different fancy watch companies put their models in, and it was Omega that won the bid, and uh, it was the Speedmaster that was the best of all of the models they put forward, and so it's no surprise that it has now become known as the Moonwatch, and both these astronauts were wearing one. Uh, well, Buzz, Aldrin won, uh, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin's was on his wrist as he was on the moon's surface. Now, here's the point of the illustration. Just as the Omega Speedmaster required precision craftsmanship to get the job done and complete the assignment, so do we. Now, I want to I say to you, God pours out an unbelievable level of craftsmanship into each and every one of us in order that we might fulfill the purpose that he has in mind for us. The craftsmanship is incredible. Now, I'm not just talking about the design of how you're created as well. You know, you can look at the physicality of, say, the human eye and just be wowed by how co uh, complicated it is and what a, an incredible piece of engineering the human eye is, for example. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about an even bigger design and plan at work which involves time and history and events and free will and a few other things besides. I'm saying that Jesus is completely capable of not just creating people but fashioning events in order to bring about his purposes in our lives. And what's a real mystery is that he does that despite our setbacks and our uncertainties and our lapses and all of our struggles. That's a miracle right there. How can you do that, Jesus? But he seems to do it. New York pastor Timothy Keller tweeted uh, this just two days ago, which is kind of helpful for my message. You know, I was going to send him a message and say thanks, but... This is what he said. He says, your life is not a series of random events. 
Your family background, your education, your life experiences, even the most painful ones, all equip you to do some work that no one else can do. Seriously. Those things that you wrestle with, that struggle that you had today coming to church, those battles you've been having the last six months, they are all part of how God equips you to then be on assignment later on. Even if it's only to bring experience and comfort and support to someone else going through the same thing. You are uniquely positioned to do the things that God has asked you to do. Timothy uh, Timothy Keller then went on to refer to a verse from Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10, which is one of the most powerful verses about purpose in the Bible. And in fact, it's it's the verse we use for our purpose singles ministry right here in BCC. And it says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Now, if we jump back to Acts 26, 16, that word appoint is an incredibly cool word. It literally means hand-picked in advance by God. In other words, Jesus has come down in a vision from heaven to meet with Paul, and he says, I'm hand-picking you, and I planned to do this from a long time ago, and now it's time for you to get ready and go on your assignment. You and I, too, are hand-picked in advance by God to do things no one else can do. No one else. And it's to a design spec way, way more elegant and complicated than a watch. Can I just put it to you as well? Because it doesn't involve just machinery. It involves our free will. It involves our events. It involves time. As a response to... our our message this morning, our assigned message, we will be giving you an opportunity to step forward and do business with God and ask Him directly some big questions. God, how are you appointing me? What is my assignment in you, Lord? What can I do for you, Father, with my life? It's one of the biggest questions that Christians face. How am I going to be fruitful for you, Lord God? So we see first from the colossal verse that is Acts 26, 16, that there is power. When we are assigned, Jesus speaks resurrection, life, and power over our lives. Second, we see that there is purpose. When we are assigned, we are handpicked in advance by God for purpose and for assignment. Lastly, let's just take a look at one more thing. It's presence. When we are assigned, we will see Jesus in the picture as we look back, and we will see Jesus in the picture coming up ahead. So last weekend, it was Mother's Day, wasn't it? And uh, we had, uh, had a big frame out in the lobby there, for those of you who were there with us last Sunday. And uh, we wanted to celebrate with you by getting you to take some photographs, and we set up a big picture frame and space for you to gather and celebrate with your family and your friends and hopefully get some good photographs of, uh, of your mum, maybe, and so on. Uh, is Enid Ewers here? Enid, are you here? Just raise your hand if you're here. Yeah, she's there right at the back. We got the most fantastic picture of Enid Ewers ever. I'm sorry to embarrass you, Enid, but what a legendary picture we got for you. That's just great. One of our elders, Dami, who took communion today for us, he got one of the nicest pictures of Chloe and my three boys that I've ever had taken. Dami, thank you so much for that. I'm so pleased. And if any of you had great photos taken, please do send them in via our WhatsApp or you know, email them into admin at BCC Life. We'd love to see those, and we can put a composite up. Um, we have had some already, but please send in some more. It's really nice to see those pictures. Taking pictures is a big part of our lives, isn't it? And the reason we do it is because it records a memory. It captures what was going on, the events of the day. But the most important thing about pictures is that it captures who was there. It captures who was there. 
I've, I've noticed on social media, I can take a picture of a scene like a lake, you know, and you might get five or six li likes or whatever. But if you take a picture of the family enjoying the lake, you get 100 likes. It's because people are interested in who was there. They want to see people. People are interested in, in who was there. Um, I was fascinated as I was researching the, the moon landing for my message today that as Armstrong and Aldrin climbed back on board the Eagle lunar module, they ditched some stuff because they wanted to save some weight and some fuel as they were leaving the moon. And one of the things that Neil Armstrong left behind was an empty Hasselblad camera. Now, for those of you who kind of know your cameras, Hasselblad are a pretty good make, I think. Uh, they're worth quite a lot of money. Uh, so I can only imagine, you know, like if there's ever another mission to, to the moon and they get back to that original landing site and somebody scrabbles around in the moon dust and they find this Hasselblad camera, man, that's going to be worth a lot of money, even if it's a bit burnt and useless, because it was the original camera that Neil Armstrong took with him to the moon. Now, he took the film with him and took all the f little pictures, of course, but he left the camera behind. In Jesus' massive statement to Paul in Acts 26.16, he says that he's come to, now listen to these words, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you. In other words, past and future. As you look back over your life of assignment, Paul, and you survey all the things that have happened to you, you will see my hand on your life. You will see that I was in the picture there too. And uh, who of us in the room knows how powerful that can be? You know, when you're having a tough day, sometimes it's great to just go back through the journal, go back through your prayer life, go back through the key events of your life and go, well, Jesus, you definitely did that. There's no question about that issue. I get that totally. I sometimes do that. I don't know about you. Do you ever do that? Do you sometimes have a tough day and then you think, you know, you're wrestling with your faith or you're kind of having doubts or, and then you go back through the track record and you go, oh, no, no, no. You definitely did those things, Jesus. There's no question about that. That's great. That's in the bank. And then you feel better because you know that Jesus turned up in your past. Amen? What Jesus also promises Paul is not just that, though. He promises, hey, I'm going to pitch up again. I'm going to turn up in your future. You're going to have more pictures you're going to be able to take standing with me at your shoulder, doing great things to build the kingdom together. How reassuring and confidence building is that? You're lying on the road and somebody says to you, you're going to have a track record of historical testimonies. And by the way, I'm stockpiling a whole load of them for the future as well. Come on. That's great. When we are assigned, we will see Jesus in the picture as we look back and as we look forward. I'm going to ask the worship team just to come and join me. Three huge things from Acts 26:16. Number one, power. When we are assigned, Jesus will give us resurrection power. He will speak his life and power over us in the assignment. Number two, purpose. When we are assigned, we will be handpicked by God for purpose and designed into the fabric of time and history way, way, way more elegantly than a, than a watch. Number three, presence. When we are assigned, Jesus promises us historical testimonies where we can see his presence at work in our lives, but he also promises that there's way, way more to come as we walk with him, as we journey with him. Church, let's all stand up a minute together. In a moment, we're going to worship God, and I'm going to invite you to make some responses. But before we do that, just think for a moment of the impact that Paul had 
on the early church and on the church in general. He was an incredible person, absolutely incredible. I mean, he went through a ridiculous level of difficulty with the gospel. Uh, they've counted up, and apparently he, in the New Testament, you can link Paul to 50 different place names where he visited. Schol- Bible scholars reckon he planted 20 churches, and some of those churches went on to plant hundreds of churches. This man was massively instrumental for the church, probably second only to Jesus himself. He writes a whole bunch of stuff in the New Testament. What a turnaround. What an assignment. Absolutely incredible. And it hinges on Acts 26, 16. Those are the words. Nine things that he says to, to, to Saul as he's lying on his back in the, in the dust. What an incredible statement. If you ever want to get encouraged, read Acts 26, 16 to yourself a few times. The promises in it are fabulous. I want to invite you to respond uh, for yourself to the passage today in three ways. If you want more power in your life, more res power from Jesus, and you want that spoken over you, and you want it in your body and in your heart and in your soul, you can see some hands going up. Hey, why don't you just come down the front and ask Jesus to give that to you? Wherever you are, if you want more, I'm someone that needs more power. I need res power to just get out of bed in the morning sometimes, but I need res power for assignment. If you're someone that wants more purpose or wants to understand your purpose in Jesus and you're not sure and you're still figuring that out, then I'd ask you to come to the front and do some business with God and say, God, would you show me my purpose? And can I just be really honest? I spent a long time in my life trying to work out what my purpose was. And praise God, I seem to have found it, which is great. But for some, I understand what it's like not to feel like I'm completely in the will of God. You know, I was trained to become a pastor when I was 38. I spent a long time trying to figure out my purpose. So it's no crime to take time on it, but maybe this morning you want to hear from God say what your purpose might be. And maybe you're a person who just wants more presence of Jesus in your life. You listen to these messages and you go, oh man, I'd love to have Jesus pitch up in my life and, and for a great testimony to share. And we'd all love that for you. And you're saying, yeah, I want more from Jesus. I want Jesus to show up more in my life. I want to know that he is going to show up a lot in the future. Just come and do business with God while we worship. And what's going to happen is we're going to sing for a little bit. For you guys down the front, I applaud your courage. Well done for responding to the message. Um, Just receive from God while we worship. And then our prayer team are going to come and pray with you guys and pray for anyone else in the room that needs prayer uh, at the close of our service in just a minute. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, church. Just come and do business with God. Come on.